I am Planta on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Leanne Prane joins me again. She's just published a new book, The Creative Instigator's Handbook, A DIY Guide to Making Social Change Through Art. It's a terrific book, marvelously designed and engaging, too. Leanne looks at how even in a pandemic, when people are self-isolating so much, creativity can be manifested. She also points out in the book the connection between art and activism. That's something important to consider, not just of contemporary movements, but protests in history. The book is a showcase of the artwork of so many people that Leanne has interviewed, not just close to home, like the poet Kevin Spence, who uh, launched his uh, recent book of poetry, doing distanced readings across the city. Uh, as well, Leanne looks at artists in the United States who found inspiration in the Black Lives Matter movement, or around the world, like in Copenhagen, where she talks to Thomas Dambo, who upcycles uh, materials and makes remarkable sculptures. The book uh, is also helpful in terms of providing encouragement and ideas as to what activist endeavor one might wish to tackle with checklists or many other examples of people who've taken on an artistic pursuit for themselves and or the wider world. Leanne Prane is a writer, speaker, and certified design professional. Her previous books include Yarn Bombing, co-written with Mandy Moore, and Strange Material, Storytelling with Textiles, which she was... uh, first on the program with back in 2014 like that book this uh, new one is from arsenal pulp press visit leannprain.com for more please uh, welcome back to the plant online program leanne prain was praying good morning good morning how are you pretty good yourself good um it, it said as you write in the book that we live in a digital r- renaissance or renaissance as i like to pronounce it what, what does that look like say um, I mean, I think for me, part of working through um, the idea of writing about artists was like, you know, how do we exist in the world? You know, a lot of times people who did things, and I, I consider artists and crafters sort of in the same school of folks. So, yeah. you know, this might have been we created privately in homes or we created for, you know, galleries in the past for specific collectors or we created things for utility. And, you know, now we're in this time and place where really we can share something we make, you know, a piece of embroidery on Instagram yeah. and have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people see it in, you know, two seconds within posting. Um, so I think we're just in a, a time where we're very much more aware of what everybody else is creating and making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, it, that, that's a good thing for, for, for people that want to share um, the ability to do that to get a following even. It's very fast, isn't it? It is. And I think, I mean, one of the things I was trying to get out in the book is it also can be a bit overwhelming because, yeah. um, you know, sometimes these projects are things that take tens of thousands of hours to create, right? Like, um, you know, I've written a past book about yarn bombing and, you know, people would be like, oh, can you come knit a cozy for a skyscraper tomorrow? I'm like, <laughs> no, no. Like, that's a year. That's a year worth of knitting, right? Yeah. And so I think maybe we, we, we're so used to consuming things visually that we don't necessarily think about the time and thought that mm. needs to go into making these things, too. Um, and, and, you know, for somebody who really wants to start making community projects, you know, it can seem a little bit intimidating, I think. Um, and that's sort of what I was trying to get at with my book, because, like, I wanted it to be a pep top to, to be like, you can start small, you know, look at all these amazing things, but, you know, you can create something big or small. It just, um, you know, takes a little bit of um, time for you to step away, think about what you want to do, you know, start creating with the people in your immediate circle or, you know, new friends or that sort of thing. Um, So, you know, 
And then we do have great opportunities to share what we're doing and learn from each other, too. So, um, I mean, I, I love the digital culture that we live in, but it can be a blessing and a curse sometimes, right? Indeed, yeah. We'll talk, we'll talk about the curse in just a sec. But the, the, the relationship between art and activism, which you write about in the book, I found fascinating. Um, because a lot of us overlook that it's always been there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you think that's changed in the last few years, especially as we've lived through um, the pandemic the last couple of years, say? I mean, that's been was the really interesting thing for me about writing this book is that, like, I conceived of this book in 2017. Mm. And, you know, at that time, you know, I think Trump was still fairly new in office, or looking back at my history. <laughs> and, you know, there was, like, the rise of protests in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'd already been sort of writing about, you know, political change through my other books on textiles. Mm-hmm. And people who didn't read those books were always a bit surprised, and we'd had conversations about that, and... You know, even from something as, you know, could seem as whimsical as yarn bombing, like bringing something from the domestic realm out into public space is a political act. Um, And I think, you know, I wrote a book on um, narrative through storytelling, and really, oftentimes, you know, embroidery and stitch work, that was a one place women actually had a voice in society when they couldn't own property, and they were really the property of their husbands. Uh You know, so I think if we start to, to really dig into making like, there's always something that it's doing to, to change society or to give someone a personal outlet who might not have it. Yeah. Um, and so I've always just been really fascinated by that. And then I think, you know, the appetite's bigger now because I think people are, you know, with the Internet, they're more conscious that you can, you know, bring these skills in and use them. Um, but, you know, the pandemic happened in the middle of writing the book, and, you know, it was really fascinating to watch how many things were happening around me and even the artists who I'd planned to talk to before the pandemic uh-huh. and, you know, before the Capitol riots, like, you know, I was having a lot of these interviews while all of this was happening as well. Um, and, you know, trying to figure out how they're adjusting their practices, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things I noticed in the last couple of years, at least during the pandemic, other than the, the stuff that we've been thinking about uh, with, with regards to, to COVID, um, it, was the, the greater awareness that Black Lives Matter, uh, Matter took on. Uh, mm-hmm. That was in 2020. What what excited you in terms of the art that was being created at that time, say? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I did touch on in the book that's quite amazing is, um, I believe it was the mayor of Washington, D.C. actually commissioned a bunch of artists to create the Black Lives Matter statement, like, in in the middle of the city while well, all of these things were happening, right? Yeah. Um, on the doorstep of the White House. And I don't think we, you know, would have seen that before 2020. Right, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, some of those artists, I believe, when I was trying to, um, I had reached out to that office actually hoping to get a statement and unfortunately, you know, busy times, obviously their priorities were mm-hmm. elsewhere. But, um, you know, to see a city commissioner understand the power of um, art and commissioning artists, mm-hmm during such a critical time in their city where really that city had so much unrest happening was quite amazing to see. Um, you know, there's an, an artist in the book um, who's been doing an art practice for over 30 years right, in Detroit. And, you know, he's at the end of sort of his legacy of an art practice and passing it on to become a foundation. And, you know, that project really was created from, you know, materials of his neighborhood that people saw as waste and, He's really created a destination with this, within his city for people to come see art. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not all things need to be sort of in the middle of the protest either. Um, you know, they can be a slow build, and that's what he's done over 30 years as well. Yeah. 
the, in, in this country, um, we, we also had the, the, um, the installation of the red dress um, mm-hmm. and, and greater awareness of that. Um, uh, also during the pandemic, I think that's something that, that um, uh, r- really came to the fore and, and, and became widely known, if you will. Um, one of the things you talk about in the book uh, is the importance of informed work and, and doing research. Um, I found with the orange shirt um, thing that, that was happening as well during this time that, that a lot of people were appropriating that. That's right. Um, you talk about how important it is to, to do that research and to do that work, and not just, say, take on the, the, the symbols or, or, or um, say, say, don something um, in the form of, of uh, say, supporting a cause or, or you, you know, because it, it can come off as exploitative. Um, what do you tell people in terms of, of I mean, the, the handbook is, is great in that, the, the, that it gives us the, the tools we need to, to sort of think about how we go about our practice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it was important for me to think about, well, like, who are you in the world and, like, what do you have to contribute? And, you know, often I think we can... Um, part of that starts sort of just figuring out like where you are best positioned to speak. Right. Mm. Um, and so like I had actually worked with, um, Comox nation, um, which is a region I grew up very close to, mm-hmm. um, to actually, um, have a piece in the red dress project. And with, you know, most of the artists in the book, we did interviews, but as I worked, um, with representatives with that group, it became very, um, apparent to me that really their voice was best used in the book. Um, so that actually, in terms of, you know, me as a writer creating a book, mm-hmm. uh, there was a very conscious decision um, to have their voice in the book and not mine. So that's mm-hmm. the only part of the book I didn't write. Yeah. Um, so it can be an instance like that. But I do have a whole chapter where I ask people to really think about, you know, what makes them personally, like, angry about the world, right? Like, we all have things that are either we're curious about or we want to see change or we've been immediately impacted by it or... You know, folks in our circles have been immediately impacted by it. But, um, you know, two people can be working on a um, similar project, and you might have slightly different politics, and mm-hmm. it's figuring out where that meeting place is. Um, there's an artist, um, Aram Sansusians, from, pardon me, Aram Hansusians from Chicago. Oh, yeah. And she does all sorts of visual work, but one of the pieces of work she does is um, she creates pr- um, protest banners with members of the public. Mm. And part of this becomes a library. And, you know, as I was talking to her, I learned, like, she is, um, you know, a child of immigrants to the U.S. She's Korean. And she often felt like when large protests were happening, you know, against immigrants in the U.S., um, that she wasn't able to go out into public spaces and protest. Um, And so often the act of making banners with others was allowing their voices to um, appear on the cloth, but then people who were able to go and protest for them could take their their voices out on these banners. And um, she said sometimes people would make banners that were completely against her personal politics. But what was really important to her was getting voices out, right? So that's where, you know, her cause was really about, you know, free speech and having people, like, participate in that protest of protesting in public. Um, though some of their opinions might slightly differ. 
Yeah, I'm jumping ahead here, uh, Leanne, but uh, near the end of the book, you talk about ar- archiving a lot of the work that happens because you know a lot of a lot of our interests they fizzle out or causes get solved even sometimes or, or evolve, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I collect political buttons, and so I was going to ask you about um, the, uh, the the trading thing that that uh, happened here in Vancouver for a while. Oh, yes. Um, Production, yeah. yeah, and but but I I love what you uh, the, the chapter on Cifuentes because we see the, these signs um, that um, you know they 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 have different causes and they they become historic if you will, um, and as a collector of, of political memorabilia, I mean I just found it just enjoyable to see um, how these things happen. And and how important they they are and and um, the the, um, the archive in the United States the, the National Archives um, w- would often go to protests or would go, go to say political conventions and collect handmade signs mm-hmm. and they would become part of the, um, the the you know the 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 archive because some historian thought that this was important. Definitely, yeah. And I mean, I think with her project, it was really interesting because I said, like, where will they live? Where will they get archived? Yeah. And they believe they are in a couple collections whenever she goes to create this with different museums. Mm -hmm. But she said, it's very important to me to ensure that they are always a living library, which means they can always be checked out and used. Mm. So they don't end up in an archive just to sit there. And, you know, that was really fascinating to me, right? So. Um, and, you know, I think that's the other thing we're kind of learning is we, you know, maybe we think we've gone through certain things in human history. I mean, I think if anything, the last five years has taught us, like, you know, we're, we're not as far in human history or evolved as we thought we were, right? Like, when you think of everything <laughs> yeah. happening in the world today, right? Yeah. I think we've fooled ourselves a little bit sometimes, right? So, um, so, you know, those causes that people were, you know, protesting for 50 years ago, we're, we're still we're still doing that. Yeah, right? who, knew, who knew we'd, we'd still be talking about abortion, right? Right or Nazis? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Indeed. Know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like the uh, uh, the uh, uh, part of the book where you talk about reimagining public space. Um, you use an example. These are these alleys in downtown Vancouver that uh, have been redone. There's the one behind Burke's. I guess the uh, South Lane of Hastings there at Granville. Uh, the one at the, uh, um, I guess it's underneath the Orpheum. Um, along Granville as well, between Granville and Seymour. Uh, for, for people listening to us, because we're, we're talking essentially on the radio, and um, it, it's, it's great in the book because we can see the photographs, but w- what does it look like down there? Sure. So Alley Oop, that is off Granville Street in the business district, is a very bright yellow and pink uh, alley. Uh, it's been painted with different lines, so a person can play basketball. There's a couple of basketball hoops that are installed. Uh-huh. Um, and so the idea of that was that really um, it became a space that could be used by the public. Um, it became a, a brighter space, a more inviting space. Um, a lot of back alleys in Vancouver, you know, are left over from our horse and carriage time, so sure. they're quite wide, yeah. but you know, full of um, you know dumpsters and commercial activity. So the idea really was that you know space should belong to everyone and anyone. Um, and one of the um, conversations that I had and I'm trying to remember if it ended up in the interview like I was asking for folks who are homeless living in the alley like was that a good experience for them or not mm-hmm. uh, one of the people who worked on that project had said that um, you know they had actually found it beneficial that there were more people trafficking through that you know they were actually able to get a little bit more food a little bit more spare change so 
um, that it actually, you know, sort of supported, um, you know, their sense of community. Yeah. So, um, and then Actors Alley is behind the Historic Orpheum Theater. So part of that, um, it's very sort of, how would I describe it? Um, surreal looking, like there's black and white checkers and wavy lines, and there's actually a sound installation so you can step on um, parts of the alley and it will make music, yeah. uh, which is appropriate sort of for, uh, you know, a place where a lot of musicians have played over the years. Uh-huh. Um, but the idea is just really public engagement and, you know, taking those places back to be used by people and not cars. Yeah. <laughs> so so people, I see them all the time on Instagram. People always taking selfies and the sort down there. Yeah. Uh, the photos people can look at in your book, The Creative Instigator's Handbook. Um, what, what about the argument, Leanne, that, that um, because I hear this online a lot about, especially the mural festival, here in Vancouver, that these are just gentrifying exercises and essentially displace people. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's challenging in a place like Vancouver where like, it's, it's a very expensive place to live, right? right yeah. Um, but I think about, like, I grew up on Vancouver Island, and, you know, one of the great success stories of my childhood was Chimanus, which was a town, it was an industrial town that basically lost, you know, its livelihood, and mm-hmm. it was depressed for a really long time, and uh, residents started to paint murals as a way to bring tourists in and to revive the town. And, you know, now they have an amazing theater. And so, um, you know, I think part of it is economic. Where mm-hmm. does that happen? Um, but, you know, I also I live very close to the Main Street area, and I do also see a lot of joy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I do see people. I mean, it's one of the few neighborhoods, at least in the city I've experienced, that has not seemed to suffer as much during the pandemic as some of the others. You yeah, know, it's yeah. hard. It's mostly independent businesses in the main street area for the most part right yeah. um so yeah i mean i think there's always a, a negative and a positive um i know there's some particular controversies with certain murals in uh-huh. certain places on the housing um i you know can't speak for those organizers but um yeah, I don't yeah. know. I mean, I, I think it really depends on the situation, and I talk a lot about consultation and figuring yeah. out when you're doing something, is it appropriate for the community as well? Again, it's yeah. another example of art, uh, the political in art, and, and I think that that's something we shouldn't overlook. Um, I, I want to talk about Kevin Spence for just a sec. I sat next to him at a dinner um, oh. a couple of years ago, and I found him just an interesting person to talk to. Uh, you write about him in the book because during the pandemic he had a book that, that came out, uh, and um, you talked about how he went about publicizing it. That's right. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the wonderful, I mean, I don't want to say wonderful things about the pandemic, but one of the strange things about, of course, everyone being home and using their phones and yeah. looking at what was going on is all of a sudden half the people I know seem to have Kevin on his poetry tour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it was this really fun thing to watch this community event basically happen on my Instagram feed where Kevin was going around the city and... um and I don't know Kevin that well. We we met I think once many years ago, but mm-hmm. I know so many people who know him. And um, you know, he decided to do rapid poetry reading. So he was everywhere from the Kitsilano Showboat to um, apartments in the West End. He set up a mini stage in Stanley Park. He invited other poets to read with him. But it really was you know the poetry series came to different places in the city versus, you know, typically you would go, you know, to a bookstore and listen to someone read. Right. And, um, you know, I think he's got some great, you know, theatrical skills, so he's really able to project. And 
um, you know, why shouldn't poetry be part of our everyday lives? And why shouldn't it be out roaming in the world? Why don't we do this more often? So I thought that was a really interesting story to share with the reader. And he, and he sold a few books along the way, didn't and he? And he sold a few books along the way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you talk in the book about how to deal with creeps hey, who, who's, who might push in with, with less than uh, good intentions. Let's say, for example, that a reading that Kevin might do, someone mm-hmm. might show up and, and, and make trouble. Um, it's more insidious online, obviously. You know, people um, have have uh, terrible things to say and nasty comments to make along the way. And, and um, it, so, in terms of, of how to deal with, say, the the uh, because you, let's say you're in the midst of the pandemic, you're you're alone. You decide to do something, and then you finally decide to share it online to a larger audience, and then you have to deal with crap. Um, wh- what do you tell people in the book about how to deal with all that? I mean, I think there's a couple things. I mean, one, you know, not everybody, of course, lives in the world in the same way. So even when you're working in public, not just online, people deal with harassment, you know, and, you know, um, and so part of that is if if you're not, you know, feeling safe, um, you know, everybody sort of, as in life, we always have to take our own personal risk assessments when we do things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's when it's really great to work with collaborators or, you know, to make sure you've made a safety plan for yourself. Um, you know, online, I think part of it is, you know, it is naturally part of the online world and actually part of creating. I mean, when pe- some people see people being creative, I don't know, it brings something up to them where either they need to be overly critical because somebody was overly critical to them in a different life. <laughs> yeah. uh, they might need to be judgmental. So I think it's always, you know, figuring out what are my intentions of making this project? Who am I talking to? Which audience do I want to reach? And then hopefully if you feel really centered in that, whatever negative activity comes to you, you're able to hear it but not digest it, right? Mm. Um, And, like, if you're truly creating authentically, you know, to reach people that you really want to reach and, you know, you've tested it and you sort of, you know, know who you're talking to, should make that process a bit easier. I mean, it's never easy, but that's the hope. Yeah, yeah. Um, the importance of upcycling, um, as, as I mentioned a moment ago, I collect buttons. So, so a lot of these political buttons, especially the older ones, came from from people who just managed to collect them over the years, or they had a family member say who collected them, and so they passed it along to me because they figured I, I could use it, and and you know I gratefully accepted them. Um, so I decorated one hallway here in my office at home. Um, just one side of the the hallway with with uh, the buttons, and so to put the buttons on, I, I would um, buy the, the the those bulletin boards, those cork boards, you know, at the oh, yeah. office supply store. Now, a lot of those things, you know, cost a lot of money sometimes. So I I did the thing where I went on Facebook Marketplace or in Craigslist and tried to find say used ones because you know they're essentially just being put on the wall, and then I would cover them with buttons, right? So I didn't need mm-hmm. anything new really. Um, that that's one thing that you got uh, that you talk about in the book that, that we shouldn't get hung up on say the cost of buying things. If we want to paint, um, we don't have to go out and get easels and brushes and, and palettes and and, and uh, canvas, do we? I don't think we do. I mean, I think those things are always wonderful and luxurious to have, yeah. but I wouldn't want that to um, keep somebody from starting. And and you know, part of this book is a pep talk to just start, just do something and. You know, I, I think it was interesting when Yarn Bombing came out, you know, one thing I hadn't anticipated is we, we did get a lot of negative feedback about, oh, you know, that's a, a luxury craft and that's wasteful. Yeah. But, you know, frankly, everybody has a knitter in their life that passes 
is a way that has an adequate of yarn. I hate to say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, uh, there's endless free yarn if you look for it. Um, you know, I worked in community arts councils for many years, and it's amazing to watch, like, what artists can do with cardboard and a pencil, right? If, if you bring enough intention and time, um, you know, you really only need the most basic of tools. Um, you know, I happened to, um, I did buy myself a secondhand antique printing press during the pandemic, uh-huh. but I also was part of my Facebook Buy Nothing group that's quite big in my neighborhood. And, oh, yeah. you know, I needed some gloves and some uh, gritty orange stuff to clean the press, and I just posted it. And within 10 minutes, 10 neighbors offered me all the things I needed, you know. Um, so I think if, if you know, you, you know what you're looking for and you put the word out, Eventually, it will come to you. You might need to be a little bit patient, yeah. or just start with a different set of tools and work your way up until you can find the tools you need. Yeah, you bring up something interesting. I um, I noticed in 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 my neighborhood. I'm I'm off of Fraser and King Edward. Um, the the Facebook Buy Nothing group has become quite quite a a, a big thing in mm-hmm. in this you know all parts of the city really, and. Um, I noticed watching the posts online just just how much people are willing to share and how quickly, as you said, um, someone puts a request, they'll get a response right away, won't they? They they will. And, you know, I actually had a really lovely experience through my by Nothing group as well. Is um, There's somebody up on Canby and 39th, his name's Barry, uh-huh. and he and his wife decided to make their front lawn public space. And he was painting a mural and looking for paint during the pandemic, and I happened to have some. So we met up for a coffee, and I gave him some paint. And a couple weeks ago, he launched a free little art library on his front lawn. And it's it's beautiful. It's all He had somebody do electrician work on it, so like there's a, it lights up. Oh, yeah. Um, artists can donate art, and other people can pick up miniature works of art. Um, and so, and you know, I just got a newsletter from him where he's telling me about all sorts of community events I can go to. Um, so sometimes, you know, it's not even just picking up supplies. It's getting to know the people around you and they're part of your community. And um, yeah. that's been one of those really wonderful things about those three groups, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things where, where um, um, I notice as I'm, I'm seeing all these posts on my feed, um, I realize there are other people in the community because it's where we, we, we live in Vancouver. We often walk through our neighborhoods, and, you know, there are a lot of empty yeah. houses from time to time. Uh, uh, there are people living in, 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 in our neighborhoods, aren't there? There, there are. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Who would have thought, right? Yeah, indeed. Um, the other thing that I, I, I really uh, enjoyed in your book is, is this idea that, that um, we, we need to combat the, the notion that art is snobby or for the snobby, say. And um, that's something that, that we we all need to do work on, isn't it? I, I think so. I mean, I have to say, like, I did study art history, you know, as an undergrad. You know, I wanted to be a curator when I was 17. But going back to the protest posters, you know, I spent a couple of years working at the Belkin Art Gallery at UBC as a work-study student. Mm-hmm. And that was during when the APEC 96 protests were oh, happening yeah. in Vancouver. And I remember one of the roles was Scott Watson, the curator at the time, told me to go out and steal the posters that the protesters had put up so we could put it in the archives. Yeah. And um, But in the meantime, I had friends and classmates who were, you know, really actively part of those protests. And, um, you know, a few years ago, I was working at SFU at Burnaby Mountain, And I would walk into the office I was working in, and every day I would walk past, and I wish I could remember the artist, a photographic print that's part of the SFUR collection Mm -hmm. of protesters being pepper sprayed. 
and my friends are in that photo, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But this is now a very high art piece, but it was actual people, you know. Um, and, you know, during that time as well, when I was an undergrad, I was working in North Vancouver, like making lantern festivals, you know, in North uh-huh. Vancouver, which at that time was really a place where a lot of new Canadians landed. Um, you know, and then I was going to formal art history classes and we we're talking about the canonization of arts and there had been an essay written about indigenous art that was considered very radical at the time, the mid nineties, you know, which is now so completely different of where, you know, that world of the formalized art world is working. And I thought, well, why are these all so different? You know, yeah. I mean, really it's about people creating stuff, trying to talk to other people. So I think that's always been a little bit of my personal mission is to be like, these lines actually are really blurred and they should not be separate, you know? Yeah. You've really created a marvelous book here. Just, just um, uh, uh, the design itself is, 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 is terribly engaging and, and, and uh, just fun to look at. It must have been fun to write, was it? I, I had a lot of fun writing it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's funny. Like, my publisher said to me, you can never write a small book. Originally, I really had imagined it as a handbook size piece. Uh-huh. But um, I love talking to artists and figuring out what motivates them. And, um, you know, the more I kind of dug into it, the more I'm like, no, we need color and, you know, more of their voices. And, um, yeah, I had a really good time, um, you know, figuring yeah. out what would be in it. Yeah. Leanne, it's a pleasure to speak with you again. Congratulations on this book, and, and good luck with it. Thank you very much. Thank you for um, doing so much research and um, bringing uh, so many good questions into you. The website for more is at leanneprain.com. The book is called The Creative Instigator's Handbook, a DIY guide to making social change through art. It's published by Arsenal Pulp Press. Its author, Leanne Prain, join me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plantev.